Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It was late in September, somewhere in the northwestern suburbs of Chicago. Mary woke up at around 6 in the morning, just like any other school day. It was less than a month since she started 7th grade, her last year of junior high, so she was eager to get going. But this morning, as she got up from bed, she felt like it was different. It did not feel like any other day. You see, Mary woke up with a sore throat and runny nose. She thought it was probably from the allergies or from the change in weather from summer to fall. To relieve her sore throat and runny nose, Mary went to the bathroom and sleepily opened the medicine cabinet. She remembered the medicine that her mom made her take the last time she felt this way. When she found the bottle, Mary opened the cap, took two capsules out, placed it in her mouth, and had a sip of water from the faucet. Downstairs, Mary's parents were also preparing for the day. They heard Mary get up and walk to the bathroom, thinking it was just her regular routine. Seconds later, Mary's father heard a loud thump coming from upstairs. Confused, he looked at his wife, who also heard the same thing. Perhaps Mary dropped something. So he went upstairs and knocked on the bathroom door. Mary, are you okay? No answer. He called out again. This time, his voice booming through the second floor of the house a little louder. Still, no response. In a state of panic, he forced the bathroom door open. On the floor was his little girl, unconscious. He and his wife tried to wake Mary up, but there was no response at all. Two hours later, at the hospital, where the paramedics brought Mary, her parents heard the worst of news. But Mary will not be the only victim this day. And the reason was far more sinister than you could ever imagine. You are listening to Untimely, a podcast about untimely deaths and fatalities in recent or earlier history that resulted in damages in its wake. I'm your host, Lynn. What is one of the first things that we all do when we don't feel well? take some medicine. Medications, whether it is over-the-counter or prescribed, have been constant in many people's lives from birth. But what if the one thing that could help us get better becomes a cause of something much worse? In today's episode of Untimely, we'll learn about an incident in Chicago that has changed the way we take medications forever. The year was 1982. The movie blockbuster was E.T. Popular songs played on the radio were Physical by Olivia Newton-John and Ebony and Ivory by Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. The year was also the first time that a computer scientist named Scott Fellman 
first suggested using the smiley as a way of expressing emotion in a message. In Chicago, things are relatively the same. Summer of 1982 was one of the coldest the city has experienced since 1882. So the ushering of fall season was something everyone did not mind at all. The leaves have started to change and football season was in full force. While everyone in the Chicago area went about their business on the early morning of Wednesday, September 29th, Mary Kellerman was at Election Brothers in Elk Grove Village fighting for her life. Her parents were worried sick about their only child. The medical staff opened up their arsenal of tools and life-saving equipment to save Mary from what looked like a stroke. But, in the back of their minds, was how could a 12-year-old suffer from a sudden stroke? Everyone was baffled, including Richard Keyworth, one of the firefighters from Elk Grove Village, who learned of this emergency call. But, there was nothing else they can do. Sometime before 10 in the morning, Mary was pronounced dead, about three hours from when she first woke up. Her parents were devastated. Although nothing seemed medically out of the ordinary, her parents agreed to an autopsy to find out what caused their grief and sudden heartache. To make sure everything was adequately thought of, investigators interviewed Mary's father about the events of that morning. Even in sadness, Mary's parents welcomed the investigators to their home so they can conduct a thorough search and inventory of Mary's belongings. The goal was to look for something that might have caused her death. About 10 miles or 16 kilometers from Mary's home, Adam Janis called in sick from work that morning. He decided to stay at home so he can get some relief from a cold that was starting to get worse. At around noon, Adam went to their local grocery store called Jewel in their town of Arlington Heights to get some medicine. He picked up extra-strength Tylenol, a popular over-the-counter drug that almost everyone used for any type of pain and cold symptoms. Tylenol was the brand name of the drug acetaminophen. Outside the United States, the generic formula is called paracetamol. Historically, Tylenol was marketed for children's fevers and pain relief. The company, McNeil Consumer Healthcare, developed and marketed the drug nationwide. In 1959, corporate giant Johnson & Johnson acquired McNeil and continued to sell Tylenol under their brand. About a year later, the drug became available in every pharmacy as an over-the-counter product that can be used by both children and adults. The stable ingredient in Tylenol made compounding easy. Soon enough, different formulations of Tylenol were developed, including the one that Adam Janis picked up, extra-strength Tylenol in capsule form. Capsules are much easier on the stomach as it is quick to dissolve. And in Adam's case, it offered a quick remedy for his illness. Once Adam and the two kids got home, he made lunch for all of them, including his wife, Teresa then settled for the afternoon. He opened the bottle of Tylenol he purchased and ingested two capsules and lay down, while Teresa was in the kitchen cleaning up. Not too long after, Teresa found Adam stumbling into the kitchen holding his chest. Teresa tried to hold him up as he was falling down. 
but it was too late. Adam collapsed. He was immediately brought to the emergency room at Northwest Community Hospital. He was followed by his wife, who by then called Adam's parents to meet them at the hospital. Doctors and nurses did their absolute best to resuscitate Adam, but no matter what they did to revive his heart, it never showed signs of life. After working on Adam for what seemed like hours, Teresa was informed that her husband suffered from cardiac death. Adam was gone. The entire Janice family felt like a bomb was suddenly dropped on their feet. Adam Janice's family and the medical staff at Northwest Community Hospital had so many questions. What could cause a 27-year-old to collapse and his heart to stop suddenly? It doesn't make sense. While the medical staff prepared to examine Adam's cause of death, the Janice family went back to the house in Arlington Heights. With this devastating news, more family members showed up at Adam and Teresa's home to grieve and console one another. Adam's two brothers, Joseph and Stanley, were there, including Stanley's new wife, also named Teresa. The two newlyweds just got back from their honeymoon. They were all gathered at the house in disbelief. A little down south, in the village of Winfield, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers from the Janus residence, new mom Mary Reiner was at home with their newborn. The baby boy was their fourth, but just a special. Her husband Ed was on his way home to help with the kids. Around 3.45 in the afternoon, Mary experienced some discomfort, something she's felt after giving birth. While the baby was asleep, Mary took some pain medication to get some relief. One of Mary's children, Michelle, was nearby. Seconds later, after taking the medication, Mary fell on the floor. Her daughter, Michelle, saw everything but did not understand what was happening. Soon enough, Ed walked in and found Mary unconscious. He called 911 and dispatch sent an ambulance to their house. Mary, still unconscious, was brought to Central DuPage Hospital. There, she was barely alive, her entire family in shock of what just happened. Back in Arlington Heights, the Janice family was also in shock. By 5 in the evening, most of Adam's close friends and relatives were also at the house. Stanley was putting on a brave face for his elderly parents and his brother, Joseph. With all the commotion, the questions, and planning, Stanley's head started to ache. He told his wife, who hugged him, and thought to take some medication. Theresa also felt a headache coming on, so she followed him to look for something to take. Stanley found a newly opened bottle of extra-strength Tylenol capsules, took two, and gave another two to his wife. After sipping some water to wash down the medication, Stanley went outside to have a smoke with his brother Joseph. But before Stanley was able to light his cigarette, his knees buckled down on the ground. Joseph screamed and yelled at his family members nearby to call an ambulance for Stanley. But seconds after Stanley went down, inside the house, Stanley's wife, Teresa, also collapsed. Another phone call was made to get help, and the Arlington Heights Fire Department was first on the scene at the house. Family members around were distraught. They just went through this earlier. 
four emergency crew members focused on Stanley while another four worked on Teresa. Every symptom that happened to Stanley was followed by the same physical manifestations with Teresa. Once both were somewhat stable, the two were rushed to Northwest Community Hospital, where Adam's body was still waiting examination. One of the emergency doctors from the hospital was informed that the Janice family was coming back. This time, there were two of them, and both were in critical condition. At 6 in the evening, at an Illinois Bell store in Lombard, about 11 miles east of Winfield, staff members were busy offering the latest and greatest in phones and telecommunications. Mary McFarland was working on the floor. While on duty, she complained to her co-workers of having a tremendous headache. As many would have done, Mary walked in the back room of the store and grabbed an over-the-counter medication from her purse. Seconds after taking the capsules, she dropped on the floor unconscious. One of her co-workers found her and signaled to others to call an ambulance. Mary was brought to Good Samaritan Hospital in nearby Downers Grove. Her husband and two kids rushed to the hospital. Mary McFarland was unresponsive. At this point, the medical examiners, police officers, and public health officials have heard of the emergencies in Arlington Heights, where three members of the same family were brought to the hospital with what seemed like the same symptoms. At first, medical professionals thought the cause was a deadly virus, so quarantine was ordered for those who responded to the Janus family residence, just in case. At 8 in the evening, investigators arrived at the Janus house to try and find the culprit. Carefully, they looked everywhere. In the basement, the backyard, all the rooms where Adam, Stanley, and Teresa were to trace their steps. One of the investigators found a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol capsules, which were taken by all three as mentioned by family members. Thinking nothing of it, the investigator brought the bottle back to the hospital. At 8.15 in the evening, Stanley Janice was pronounced dead. His wife, Teresa, was barely hanging on, but so far was alive. By the time the investigators went back to the hospital with all the evidence collected from the Janice residence, there were no clear answers. Now, two members of the same family were dead, and it cannot be a coincidence. It was late that night when all of the evidence was laid out by the investigators, and there was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. Meanwhile, an off-duty firefighter, Lieutenant Philip Capitelli, had his police radio on all day. As he heard about the Janus family, he suddenly heard of another incident from another source, his mother-in-law. She was distraught as she heard some horrible news at work. The 12-year-old daughter of her co-worker inexplicably died. Her name was Mary. At this point, Capitelli had a hunch that maybe they were all related. Quickly, he gave another firefighter, Richard Keyworth, a call. The two men discussed the four cases, reviewed the reports prepared by their respective fire stations, and realized that there was something in common. Not with the victims themselves, but by something else. They had to report what they found to the investigators. Around 9.30 in the evening, 
a United Airlines flight from Las Vegas landed at O'Hare International Airport. On board was flight attendant Paula Price. Once she left the airport and headed home, Paula stopped by a Walgreens, a pharmacy and retail chain located at Northwell Street in the heart of Chicago, to pick up a few items, including a bottle of pain reliever. She got home and rested after a long flight and ended her day. Back in the suburbs, Nick Paisas was one of the investigators from the medical examiner's office trying to solve this morbid puzzle. It was late in the evening when a piece of evidence arrived from the Elk Grove Police Department. The evidence, packed and labeled to follow the chain of custody, was recovered from the home of a 12-year-old who died earlier that day. According to officials from Elk Grove, this bottle of Tylenol was found near the girl's body and it was believed that she had taken them earlier. Inside the evidence bag was a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. Remembering the evidence inventoried from the Janus residence, he searched for the bottle on the table. Paisius looked at the Janus bottle label. He read, By McNeil Consumer Healthcare, lot number MC2880. Then he looked at the bottle that just came in and read, By McNeil Consumer Healthcare, the lot number MC2880. It was exactly the same. Paisius called Deputy Medical Examiner Edmund Donahue to tell him about the two bottles. Donahue asked Paisius to open up each bottle to look inside. As Paisius poured out the capsules from each bottle, he noticed something. He noticed a strong smell. The smell of almonds. As soon as he said the words, both Paisius and Donahue thought the same thing. Cyanide. Cyanide is naturally produced by some bacteria and algae. It can also be found in some fruit seeds like apples and apricots. But if cyanide is bonded and compounded with potassium hydroxide, the resulting salt solution becomes highly toxic to anything alive. The compound is white in color and can be formed as small crystals or granules or can be formulated as a liquid and also as a gas. One peculiar thing about this chemical is that when released in the air, it smells like bitter almonds. What is interesting about this is that the ability to detect bitter almonds from cyanide is a genetic trait that only half of the population in the world has. Potassium cyanide is considered a toxic chemical and not to be messed with in any way, shape, or form. According to the Center for Disease Control, exposure to potassium cyanide can be rapidly fatal. Personal protective equipment is mandatory when handling this chemical, and we're talking full body armor and respiratory equipment, not just a pair of gloves. If used correctly and carefully, the compound does have commercial use, including fumigation or extracting metals from ore. But if a person is exposed to a dangerous level, potassium cyanide acts as a chemical asphyxiant. Basically, it prevents red blood cells from taking in oxygen and slowly deprives the body organs of much-needed oxygen. The lack of oxygen systematically shuts down the body, starting with the lungs, muscles, the heart, and eventually the brain. 
death is painful and immediate. By the end of Wednesday, September 29, 1982, three deaths had occurred in a small area of the Chicago suburbs. Three more are in critical condition. The medical examiner's office ordered blood tests for the presence of potassium cyanide on the bodies. At that time, testing for cyanide was not usually ordered outside of suspected homicides. Still, because of the findings of the two firefighters and the suspicions from the medical examiner investigators, it was determined that testing for cyanide needs to be prioritized. It was also unheard of to rush the blood tests and receive the results immediately. But none of this was ordinary. And as night turned into dawn, the nightmare was not even close to being over. By Thursday, September 30th, at 3 in the morning, Mary McFarland was pronounced dead at Good Samaritan Hospital. As investigators found out from her co-workers and family members, Mary suffered from frequent migraines and carried over-the-counter pain medications in her purse. When investigators looked at her purse, they found a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol capsules. Six hours later, new mother, Mary Reiner, also died at Central DuPage Hospital. Her husband, Ed, shared with investigators that Mary took some Tylenol shortly before she passed out. It was found out that the Tylenol was given to her about one week ago when she was discharged in the same hospital after she gave birth. The Tylenol came in a pack and not a bottle, but still, the drug was in capsule form. What seemed like random deaths were slowly becoming the making of something far sinister. And the common denominator across all of them? Extra-strength Tylenol produced by McNeil Consumer Healthcare. When the lab at the medical examiner's office opened up the bottles of Tylenol, several of the capsules were slightly discolored. The capsules were opened and the contents were examined. Usually, extra-strength Tylenol capsules had white, powdery substance which are not easily dissolved in water. But what they found inside the discolored capsules were crystallized substances. A test of the crystals produced an expected result, potassium cyanide. Earlier, the blood tests from the autopsies were released to the medical examiner as well. Each one had over 1,000 times the amount of a lethal dose of potassium cyanide. With these results at hand, the investigators had to make their findings public. Their goal was not to cause panic, but to stop any more deaths from happening. The investigators were able to pinpoint the source as the case widened. The deaths were caused by ingesting extra-strength Tylenol capsules, specifically from McNeil Consumer Healthcare, lot MC2088. A press conference was held that morning, led by the medical examiner to warn the public about the danger of taking extra-strength Tylenol capsules. Johnson & Johnson became aware of this and dispatched their own representatives in Chicago. The sudden deaths in a matter of 24 hours became a cause for concern, 
So the Federal Bureau of Investigation became involved. By 3 p.m., Johnson & Johnson had released a recall of all extra-strength Tylenol 500-milligram capsules with a specific focus on lot MC2088. But as the lab did more testing with the capsules from the two deaths that morning, it was clear that batch MC2088 was not the only batch tainted with potassium cyanide. The entire city was in fear. A special hotline was created for the public to call and report anything related to the announcement. Police in the Chicagoland area were mobilized to help with the phones and get out on the streets. Patrol cars with loudspeakers roamed every corner warning the public to avoid ingesting Tylenol and, if possible, throw out or return the bottles. Johnson & Johnson offered refunds for anyone who purchased a bottle. Volunteers, including Boy Scouts, went door-to-door -to, -door to warn residents to stop taking any forms of Tylenol, especially capsules. Later, when only capsules were found to be tainted, the company offered to replace the capsules to caplets, which were impossible to change the contents with anything other than the active ingredient. To help investigators, Johnson & Johnson posted a $100,000 reward for relevant information that can lead to a suspect or suspects. Since the deaths occurred in two different counties, DuPage and Cook, it was brought to the attention of the Illinois Attorney General. The cause of deaths by poison made this case into homicide. Although the investigation was progressing, they weren't close to finding out who was or who were responsible. But it was sure that criminal proceedings will take place. Throughout the day, pharmacies and retail stores pulled every bottle of Tylenol from their shelves. Hospitals did the same. And the public followed instructions from the medical examiner. Thousands of calls flooded the hotline almost immediately following the press conference and kept on going. It was already Friday, October 1st. A task force was formed from local and federal agents. While retail stores and pharmacies purged their stock of Tylenol, the investigators continued their search for the perpetrator, or worse, perpetrators. The next question became apparent. Was this only in Illinois, or will this happen throughout the country? Johnson & Johnson did not wait around for the answer. The company expanded its recall to all of the United States and made the announcement public. But despite the best efforts to warn everyone, it was too late for two more people. At one in the afternoon, news from Northwest Community Hospital was received by the investigators. Theresa Janice was taken off of life support, and she became the sixth person to die from this incident. About the same time, Paula Price's sister became increasingly nervous. The sisters were supposed to meet for dinner and Paula never showed up. Thinking that maybe Paula's flights were delayed, she shrugged it off. But then, United Airlines called her saying that Paula never showed up for her next shift either. Paula's sister immediately went to Paula's high-rise apartment in Chicago. She begged the apartment manager to let her inside. By 5 p.m., the body of Paula was found inside her apartment. 
Police later found a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol on her kitchen sink. The coroner stated that she died on Wednesday, September 29th. The same night, she bought the bottle at Northwell's Walgreens before she went home. Paula was the seventh victim of the Tylenol murders. Within two days, seven deaths occurred in Chicago and its suburbs. Mary Kellerman, 12 years old, Theresa Janis, 19 years old, Stanley Janis, 25 years old, Adam Janis, 27 years old, Mary Reiner, 27 years old, Mary McFarland, 30 years old, and Paula Price, 35 years old. Each of them died of potassium cyanide poisoning. On Saturday, October 2nd, Johnson & Johnson immediately stopped production of all Tylenol capsules. To prevent further tampering of products, the company introduced triple seal packaging. The bottles were foil sealed at the top of the cap, outside the cap, and the box itself. If the medication were tampered with, it would be obvious to the consumer. The manufacture of the new product will be distributed to the public in January 1983. On the same day, three separate memorial services were held for three of the victims, while on October 5th, four more were laid to rest. The investigation was nowhere near any conclusion or suspects in this matter. But on October 6th, a break in the criminal investigation appeared out of nowhere. An envelope containing a letter was received at the Johnson & Johnson headquarters. Inside was a handwritten note. The note stated that if Johnson & Johnson wants the deaths to stop, they will need to deposit $1,000,000 to an account number in a local Chicago bank. Without hesitation, the company surrendered the letter to the investigating authorities. Fingerprints collected from the letter and the envelope led the task force to a couple named James and Leanne Lewis, who at that time were living in New York. Although he was not directly linked to the tampering of the Tylenol capsules, James Lewis was arrested, tried, and convicted for extortion. While incarcerated, Lewis continued to write Johnson & Johnson. In the letters was his interpretation of how the Tylenol bottles were tampered with, It also includes how the cyanide crystals were placed carefully inside each capsule. His letters were accompanied by drawings and diagrams. But despite all this, there was no hard evidence in connection to the deaths and he was released in 1995 after serving 13 years of a 20-year sentence. In the midst of the fear of cyanide poisoning ruling Chicago and the rest of the country, The quick action of the medical examiners, investigators, and the task force led to new federal laws against tampering of consumer products. When Johnson & Johnson released its triple seal tamper-proof packaging, it became an industry standard for all medications, from prescriptions to over-the-counter products. Later, the tamper evidence seal became applicable to all types of consumer products and many other forms were created. You would be hard-pressed to find anything in the market nowadays that is not tamper-proof. In 1983, the U.S. Congress passed the Tylenol Bill, 
which made tampering with consumer products a federal offense, with fines from $10,000 to $100,000 plus jail time. Six years later, the Food and Drug Administration introduced federal guidelines for manufacturers to ensure products are tamper-proof. Despite no other deaths related to the Tylenol tampering in Chicago, many copycat killers emerged from different corners of the country using over-the-counter pain relievers and cyanide as weapons. In 1986, three deaths were reported, one in New York and two in Washington State. Another was later reported in Texas. While the cause of deaths were similar to the ones that occurred in 1982, further investigations found that the 1986 murders were completely unrelated. There were hundreds of suspects aside from James Lewis. One of them was Ted Kaczynski, the notorious Unabomber, who, from 1978 to 1995, wreaked havoc in several states, including Illinois. Kaczynski was born in Chicago, and his first bombings occurred in Illinois. But he did not live in Chicago during the Tylenol scare, though he frequented the city to visit family at that time. He was ruled out because cyanide poisoning did not match Kaczynski's methods. Another suspect was a tall, bearded man who was seen in an ATM photo at Walgreens on North Wells, where Paula Price bought the bottle of Tylenol. In the photo, you can clearly see Paula by the cash registers and the bearded man to her right staring at her. The man was never identified, but closely resembled James Lewis. In 2009, a ruling forced James and Leanne Lewis to provide DNA for further investigation. The FBI also raided his home, now in Massachusetts, and collected several items, including an Apple computer. James, still maintaining his innocence, gave a bizarre interview to a local news channel stating that he thinks of the victims daily, but was completely innocent. The evidence collected from his Massachusetts home produced nothing to convict James of the Tylenol murders. Even after 30 years, the terror of September 1982 still linger. Johnson & Johnson settled with the families for an undisclosed amount. The company never admitted to any wrongdoing since the investigators ruled out the possibility of cyanide added during the manufacturing process. Instead, the company felt that they were victims as well. Nevertheless, the company handled the crisis. Despite its initial financial loss from the product recall, Their quick response was lauded as admirable and continues to be an example of positive public relations amidst a crisis. For families of the victims, the loss never left even after all these years. Eight of the children left behind continued to mourn and honor their loved ones. But what really makes it much harder for the families is that to this day, there has been no conviction for the seven deaths in 1982. It remains one of the most notorious unsolved cases in the United States. It is the hope that with new technology available, we can provide closure for the Tylenol murders in 1982.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. As always, I am curious as to what you thought of this episode. Tell us by dropping a note at untimelypodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you want to know more about the criminal proceedings related to this case, I encourage you to listen to other podcasts that cover this case, including Case File, Episode 118. If you have a few minutes, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you're on Twitter, stop by and say hello to us. Search for at Untimely Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.